Hey, everybody. Good to see you guys again. It's been a little while. I, uh, I didn't get to, ooh, you want to bring me down just a little bit. You're going to regret that if you don't. Just give you a heads up now. I didn't get to bring my wife with me this time. I am sorry. I did everything I could to find someone who wanted to watch five children. And funny enough, it's not a huge list for that. You thought there would be, but not so much. So Lisa stayed home with the kids today, so I, I bring her greetings and her love. I have, a, I have a strong word today, and so I want to say that now. Now, typically, when someone comes in and say they have a strong word, usually that means that you're going to feel bad about yourself. But it's not what I mean. No intention of making you feel bad about yourself. But I do have a word to challenge you and to challenge the way you think and to challenge the way you approach a set of people, right? A set of people. And those people that I want you to consider tonight or today, this morning, and again, I need you just to bear with me. I want you to consider the damned. Yeah, I know. I realize what I said using some King James English. I want you to consider, just for a moment right now, whoever it is that you would put in that category. Maybe it's someone that votes differently than you. Maybe it's someone with a different sexual ethic than you. Maybe it's just a mean person from your past a derelict of type. But in your mind, when I say that word, you have an idea of what it might mean. The damned. Those that are heading towards judgment or the wrath of God is what the scriptures teach us, right? And so many of us live our lives as though this set of people don't actually exist. But the scriptures say they do, and so today I want to talk to you a little bit about the damned. Father, I ask that this word would be received in a way that produces fruit. That it would not just go in one ear and out the other, that it would not be picked up by the birds of the air, that it would not fall on rocky soil, that it would not be tore up and killed later by the cares of this life but that this word would reach its point and its purpose and be fruitful unto your will in Jesus' name. So I want you to look with me to Ezekiel chapter 22. I'm going to do a little bit of reading today. I'm sorry, I know in the 21st century we have watered down sermons to five verses and no more, but I'm gonna do a little preaching today. Is that okay? All right, just wanna make sure you're on board and some of you are like, oh, I did not sign up for this day. I visited the wrong son. I get it, I'm sorry. I'll be gone and next week, Pastor Brett, will not be so hard on you. So is he, I don't know that. I just checked his sermon history and boy, he was preaching hell two weeks ago. So <laughs> Ezekiel 22. Now this passage, as many of you would know, the scripture we quoted all the time, I looked for a man to stand in the gap, right? But so often we quote that passage outside of its context. 
outside of what Ezekiel's really saying. So let's just take a look from verse 22 through and see what we have here. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made widows in her midst. Pause. This is the prophets. This is about the prophets. Right? Just want you to pause here. He's not talking to the Assyrians or to the Babylonians or to the wicked. He's talking to the prophets. And he goes, this is what you have done. They've made many widows in her midst. They've committed murder her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Whoa. These are the pastors. These are the leaders. This is the people at the head of Israel. And he goes, hey, guys, this is who they really are. This is how they really operate. This is what they really do. So Ezekiel is bringing a rebuke to the leadership of Israel, to their priests and to their prophets. Continue reading though. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken." The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. That's the context of this next verse. See, we always jump to, we need someone to stand in the gap. Who are we standing in the gap for? What does it mean to stand in the gap, right? It's okay, I got babies. That baby ain't hurting nothing. It's all right. I've had plenty of crying. It's all right. So think about this, because we, we quote this verse all the time, and we're, we'll say that for praying for something with the school board, or we'll say that for praying for something with politics. But the verse in context is about the godly leaders of Israel being wicked. And not like a little wicked, committing murder, theft, saying God spoke when he didn't speak. Not a really good introduction to the leadership of Israel at that time. And then it says this. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Look what God is looking for in this passage, though. He said, I tried to find someone in the midst of this wickedness that would stop me from bringing judgment. Wait a second, what? God was looking at Israel and saw all of her wickedness and he was going, but I was trying to find someone who would stand that I could withhold judgment, that I could be merciful, that I could be kind, that I could be good to them. I looked for someone who would say, Lord, don't judge them. I'll stand in their stead. I don't know that I've heard that verse preached that way very often. But I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. 
that context and that verse. I looked for a man. And then I want to talk to you now about four examples in the scriptures we find in the Old Covenant out of prophets and how they respond to the damned. And yes, I'm using that word to bug some of you who are religious. Absolutely. I'm also using that word to make you get it because we talk the lost. Do you understand what the end result of the lost is? Because we like to talk about it in these flowery terms so that I don't ever have to share my faith. They're just lost. Someone's going to find them. It's where's Waldo out here? Someone's going to find them. No, 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 no. The lost, should they meet their maker in that state, face the wrath of God. That's what the scriptures teach us. So then the question would be, does that motivate you or do you just pass the buck? Jonah is a great example. We'll start with him. Jonah represents for us a man who says, I don't want you to be merciful to the wicked. Now, I know none of you in this room have ever felt that way. Hey, there's an election season coming up. I don't know if I want to scroll all of your Facebooks. So Jonah's told he's got to go to Nineveh. He knows, and this is what I love about Jonah. We're going to go to chapter 4. We're going to skip the story. We're going to get to the end to show you his heart. What does Jonah do? He takes off. He's not going to go. He ain't going to preach. He gets on a boat. He finds out that that boat can't keep him from God's purpose. Then he ends up dying in a fish because that's really what the text says. That's why it's the sign of Jonah. And most scholars say he's resurrected when he's kicked out of that fish. And the reason that Nineveh is amazed is because they have a fish god. And a man came out of their God and came back to life and came to preach the gospel, but that's not pointing to Jesus at all. The, um, so he goes there, he preaches, and then we get to chapter four, and I want to go there, and let's just take a look at what it says. But it displeased Jonah, this is verse one, exceedingly. It doesn't just like, I love this in the text. It didn't just displease him. It displeased him exceedingly. He was really unhappy with how the game went. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, now I want you to notice this because he's going to quote Moses here and he's going to stop right before Moses talks about forgiving the wicked. He quotes part of Moses, but he doesn't want to finish because he knows that if he finishes it, he's going to be arguing with the nature that God revealed in Moses, right? So here we go. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I knew who you were like, God. Wait a second, we're in the Old Covenant. This is Nineveh. What do you mean you knew what you were like, God? Don't we have a bunch of prophecies that God's going to judge all of the Assyrians? Don't we have all? And Jonah gets sent and he goes, I know you. You forgive the wicked. 
I know you, you're gracious and you're kind and I don't want you to show the kindness I received to someone I've decided is less than. Step further, there's a racial animosity. There's a whole natural, cultural animosity. I could go here and say, some of you might feel this way about immigrants. Gonna leave that one alone? I'm not endorsing borders or non-borders. I'm not getting into the whole political discussion. I'm just asking you, in your heart, when people who aren't like you come up, what does your heart do? Does it respond like Jonah? I've met lots of people. I've sat in situations and conversations, and when bad things happen, boy, oh boy, aren't they glad that they happen to the wicked. You say, Adam, no, that's not true. Oh, it's absolutely true. I graduated Liberty University. I was there when Katrina happened, and I was there when Jerry Falwell got up and explained that God did this because of the homosexuals in Louisiana. Unfortunately, it hit most of the black neighborhoods, so I don't know why God has such bad aim. Hmm. See, we do this. And the worst part is, especially people of my oak, prophets, seem to think that their job is to assign to God every incident of wrath that they can make push their agenda. I'm here to tell you the spirit of Jonah rests on many people in this day. And they find excitement about who gets left out and they don't wanna preach and they don't wanna go and they don't wanna invest their time. They like conferences, they like events, but if you put them around someone that's a little bit messy, they don't have the time. And there's something wrong there, but that's just one response. That's just Jonah. We know Jonah has some flaws. So what about Noah? Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. The Lord saw that there was wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a terrible indictment on humanity. Everything they think about, every thought of their heart is just evil. Evil, and then some more evil, and then a little evil on the side. That is who the people are. So God is coming, he's saying, this is the wicked. Here we go, another group, another set of people. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now I'm going to pause here for a second because I'm going I'm to maybe make you a little uncomfortable. I'm not trying to, but I might. When you study rabbinic literature, for any of you you're like, what is that? Rabbis, Jewish history. So when you study any of that, you're going to find that the rabbis don't honor Noah the way they honor Abraham and Moses. They make a large distinction between them. And you'd think that's interesting because Noah was righteous in his generation. The rabbis actually say that the only reason they can say that because if Noah had been in Abraham or Moses' generation, he would not have been righteous. It's a big statement from the rabbis. But again, the rabbis deal with the text different than most evangelicals do. So they say that Noah's less, and here's why. I'm going to take you there, but I want you just to keep this. They say he's less. Let's look at the text, and we'll see what happens. Genesis 6, 11 through 14. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay? Hey, comes down, talks to Noah and says, Noah, listen, they're wicked. They are evil. I'm starting over and I'm starting with you. We're going to see that same conversation happen with Moses with a little bit of a different response. But let's just go to Genesis 7.1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Okay, Noah, <laughs> world's wicked. I'm starting over. I'm starting with you. Go build me an ark. We see in the Genesis passage the same language used of Moses, that he built it according to the pattern. The ark, right, and the tabernacle, both things said. So Noah does what Moses did. Noah's going to redeem. But notice what happens here. There's no discussion between Noah and God. There's none. We don't hear that Noah challenges God to be merciful. We don't hear that Noah says, but wait a second, God. What we see Noah do is get his house in order and take care of his family. Now, some of you might say, no, no, Noah preached. Noah, I know Noah preached. Doesn't it say it in the text? No, it doesn't. In 2 Peter, it does not say that. I'll read it for you. 2 Peter 2 and verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's what the text says. It does not say he preached. It says a herald of righteousness. And many have tried to say, no, he must have gone out and preached in the highways and the byways and begged people to come into his ark. But the text doesn't say that. That's an argument from silence. And tradition doesn't say that he did that. Now, some people will say, well, Adam, he built an ark the size of like three football fields. Surely some people asked. Well, that's the assumption that everybody lived in a small little commerce of a town. They walked down the streets one another and went to the same grocery store. This is ancient, ancient, ancient Near East. He could have lived miles from his closest neighbor. Like, we still have that in Montana, and we got cars. This wasn't like they had a centralized location where everyone, no. Noah's building this ark, and here's what happens. Noah ensures that his family gets on it. But no one else. Let me give you another perspective of the damned. They can do whatever they want as long as me and my kids are okay. I'm a homeschool, ain't gonna be no Disney, ain't gonna be no Netflix, I'm gonna keep all that perverted, I'm, I'm gonna make sure me and my, and I, listen to me, I'm not saying you should turn your kids over to the world. What I am saying is, if the only concern you have is for your household, you still are not like Christ. Because rumor has it he left his. So, again, a wicked people, violent, evil, God's restarting, Noah goes, hey, as long as my family, as long as we make it in. And this is why the rabbis say he's not as righteous as Abraham and Moses. Well, why? Because as we get to the story of Abraham and we come to another group of wicked people, look what Abraham does. Abraham is not like Noah. We know that the Lord shows up with angels to Abraham's house. Abraham realizes God is here. He honors him as such. And then all of a sudden, there's this amazing discussion that takes place between the Lord and Abraham. And it starts in Genesis 18, verses 16 through 21. And this is how it reads. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went out with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, 
shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Imagine if I were to ask you what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of you could tell me. You would say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is sodomy. Thus, where we got the word. And thus, why God poured fire out on them. Isn't that what we've been taught most of our Sunday school lives? That's what happened there. That was their sin. That was his judgment. Okay? But Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50 says something different about the sin of Sodom. And this one's interesting. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Oh boy. Uh, Wait, wait, what? I thought the sin of Sodom was a sin I don't commit. Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Uh Uh-oh. Sounds a lot like America. The guilt of your sister America was she had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. But I thought, pastor, that the judgment of God was against that group. Looks like you might be in that group. And notice here, God's coming again. He's going to bring a judgment. He's going to put things in order. And this is a city. This isn't the world. He's not flood. He's going to destroy a city. And this is what happens. Genesis 18, verses 22 through 33. So then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Notice something here, whether you get this or not. Abraham's bartering with God. God has come down and said, I've heard a cry. See, we all jump to that text and we go, oh, he knew that there were men and men. And No, no, no. He heard a cry. An outcry against the city. What that means, if you study all throughout the Old Testament, I'll give you an example of an outcry. He heard the cry of the Hebrew slaves. And then he said, I'm going to deliver them. 
So he's hearing a cry coming out from those in Sodom and around Sodom, and they're saying there's evil going on in this city. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're doing all sorts of things in pride. And also, there is sexual sin. But I get tired of us focusing on that because it's the sin we don't maybe commit, and we ignore all the ones that are in our backyard. And so he's coming to this city, and he's getting ready to judge it, and look what Abraham does. Hey, wait a second, God. I know you have an agenda today. But like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Brett, when's the last time you went to prayer with God and said, hey, God, I know you said you want to do A, B, and C, but I think you should take C off the list and we should replace it with D. That's what Abraham is doing. He's about to argue with God. He goes, for 50, I'll spare it. <laughs> And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? He said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered and said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again but this once. And he stopped too soon. Abraham stopped too soon. But he did more than Noah. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. Wow. Sodom's a wicked city. God's coming to it because the cries against it have reached his throne. And he wants to come down and take a look for himself, which is always humorous to me, how an omniscient being wants to get a first eye perspective when he's all and everywhere in all things. But this is part of what God does because God sometimes will limit himself to experience things or to talk of experience the way we would understand. So he's coming to Abraham and he's gonna invite him into a place of wrestling. Abraham goes, hey, God, you don't, the judge of all the earth, you don't wanna, you wouldn't take 10 righteous with the wicked city, would you? Hear me, how many times have you heard God's gonna judge California? Like, it's like, is the only place that the judgment of God's going to come to America. It's California and D.C. Like, well, wait a second. For 10, you would have spared Sodom. For 10. Are there not 10 righteous in California? Are there not 10 righteous in D.C.? That might be harder to find, but 10? <laughs> On both sides of the aisle. But Abraham understands something, and so he wrestles with God. But then we move to Moses. Exodus 32. I think I gave our poor lady in the back Genesis 32, because that's what it says on my page, but it's not Genesis, because that doesn't exist in Moses' day for his story. So in Exodus, we have this passage that comes up. 
32 verses 1 through 14. Now, here's ultimately what has happened. Moses has gone up to the mountain, right? And he's meeting with God. And while he's away, the kids decide to make a mess. A little mess, not a big one. They throw all their gold in together. They shove it in an oven, and as Aaron says, it jumped out a calf. If ever kids explaining something, Dad, how did this get broke, son? Well, I just came up here and magically it all got shattered. No, something, somebody broke it, right? So this is what happens in this story. And so we recognize, I'm going to read it to you, but I want you to get this. We have already said, we started, the Ninevites, who are Syrians, who are the enemy of God, they're the damned, they deserve to be judged, Jonah doesn't want them to be saved. We step to the days of Noah, and the earth is filled with violence and wickedness, and God is starting over again. They are the damned. Noah does not care about anyone but his household. We get to Abraham, and it's the city of Sodom, the wicked city. But Abraham says, hey, God, this isn't who you really are, and I want to I pull on you. I know you. I know of you. Would you spare them? But he stops at 10. Because he could have, as a friend of God, said, would you spare them for my sake? Now you say, well, Adam, you don't know that he could have said that. Yes, I do, because we'll get to Moses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. For the record, I would love for more pastors to have experiences in God where their people are like, I don't know what happened. Like, he's lost. Like, is he going to make it? Is he back? Like, realistically, your pastor goes up on a mountain, Fire falls on the mountain. It's like 40 days later, you're like, he didn't take any food. He didn't take any water. I think God may have killed him. And we should start over. And we should start over just like the Egyptians and make us a God. Gotta love it. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were there in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The golden calf is now the Lord. Let me help you with this, right? We've given you the categories. This is the people of God breaking the first commandment that's about to come down that mountain that says, hey, don't have other gods before me. Before he can even tell them not to screw up the number one rule, they've already fashioned a calf. Like the irony. Moses, what God say? Well, the first thing he said, guys, first thing, is you shouldn't do that. <laughs> like what you did while I was gone, that can't happen again, guys. That's a, that's a no-no. So we have this going on. They have now stepped outside of being the elect people of God. They are living in unrepentant sin. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to this golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone. I love this. God's, God's hanging out with Moses, and he's gotten upset. At least how the story tells it. And he goes, I need you to leave me alone because I just want to be angry. That's the story here. Now, I realize this is an anthropomorphism. We're putting things on God that God is bigger than. But in the way that the story explains itself in the way in which Moses lets us understand, God is tired of dealing with the people of Israel. He's heard their murmuring. He's heard their complaining. He's literally showed up and taken care of them time and time and time again. And so he's like, Moses, get away from me. Time, dad's home, and dad's ready to play. You ever, um, some of y'all may not understand this, but maybe you will. I got this sort of caught in my arm there. You ever come home, dad's, and your wife has been dealing with the kids all day, and she's had problems with the kids all day, and so you tell her, I need you to go to your room, honey, because I'm fixing to deal with these children. And the way that I may deal with them may not be the way you enjoy me dealing with them. So I need you to go away because I'm getting ready to bring a spanking, right? That's what God is doing here. He's like, Moses, get away. I'm done. That my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Turn. He's telling God, change your mind. He doesn't deny their wickedness. He doesn't deny their evil. He just says, God, don't do what you're thinking to do to them. And finally, someone gets the heart of Christ. He tries again and again and again. He tries to call Jonah into his heart. He tries to call Noah into his heart. Abraham starts tiptoeing towards his heart. But finally, Moses goes, wait a second, God, don't do this. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to you for your offspring and they shall inherit, for, inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken on bringing on his people Israel. Now hear me. He fights God. And then he says something else. We're not gonna look at it in the text, but go look it up. He goes, but if you're gonna consume them, Take me too. He goes, hey, God, I won't be your backup plan. <laughs> what? Noah was fine with being my backup plan. No, 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 no. If you're gonna take them, take me. And all of a sudden, God says, wait a second. And I want you to understand something. God is not coming into these discussions because he's expecting to change his mind or he doesn't know what's going to happen, as some open theist may try to say. God is coming into this discussion because he wants to see what's in the heart of men. Amen. He's going, can you pull out of me my mercy? Or are you going to think that all I am is judgment? 
Are you gonna lean into my wrath because those people frustrate you? Are you gonna lean into the hope that they're gonna face the judgment? Or are you gonna put that down and ask of me my mercy because my mercy triumphs over judgment? Are you gonna lay hold of my heart and who I am? Or are you gonna stand back and watch the judgment fall on those that don't know me, fall on those that are bound, fall on those that are confused, fall on those that are hurting? Are you gonna sit back and say, well, see, that's the lot of the damned, but I'm the redeemed. Because it's easy, that's what we do, right? We, we, we create our little social clubs and we all come to church together and we all vote the same way and we all like the same things and therefore we find that this is our little clique. And this is a big clique, big group. But that's what we do. And so when we see the derelict walking down the road or the drunk or the homeless person, so often we turn our eyes from them. We move past them. We go, well, what happens if they don't like the doctrine that I'm going to share? What if they don't want to hear about Jesus? I'm not, I, and surely I'm not going to go home and pray for them and beg that God would have mercy on them and beg that God would relent from the disaster that they're going to bring on their own heads. No, I just want to make sure that I get my pie in the sky and I get my fire insurance and, mm, Jesus, hallelujah. told you I was going to ruffle feathers today. I'm not trying to offend, but I am asking you, who are you standing in the gap for? The scriptures talk a lot of times that God goes looking for things. One time he says he looks for those that will worship in spirit and in truth, right? We love that one. We love that one. But what about when he goes looking for one that'll stand in the gap for the wicked? who will say, God, not on my watch. I'm gonna pray till suicide isn't found in this county. I'm gonna pray for the drunks till they're set free. I'm gonna stand there, God, and I'm not gonna talk about sodomy like I don't have sins that dishonor you the same, and I'm gonna pray for those that are bound in sexual sin, and I'm gonna pray for those that are bound in all sorts of chaos because, God, someone prayed for me, and because, God, somehow you got to me, and I'm gonna take on your nature. And I'm going to humble myself as a servant. And I'm going to go serve on their behalf. And maybe I'll share the gospel. Maybe I'll give some food. But at bare minimum, you're going to find me praying for those that don't know you and standing in their stead that you'll be merciful to them. Moses gets it. And so he leans into this tension. Will you? When's the last time you spent 15 minutes praying for someone that was lost? Praying that God would show up in their lives. Forgiving them for the things they did that hurt you. Asking God for their mercy. Asking God that they be restored. And are you doing it with a way that says, and when they get restored, let them pay back everything they owe me and make right and apologize for every mistake they've ever made? Or are you saying, God, I'm okay if when I got hired on, I came in the early part of the day and you told me this was a day's wage? And then someone came along a little later around noontime, you told them this was a day's wage. Someone came a little longer around three o'clock, you said this was a day's wage. Someone got there at the very end, barely made it before the end of the working day, and they got paid the same wage. Am I gonna be the person that's angry because I was faithful for years and this person got saved on their deathbed? Because this is what Jesus is talking about. 
He's asking you, who will you love the way I loved? Will you go to places that make you uncomfortable? Will you befriend the sick and the hurting? Or are you guys just doing church? In Matthew 9, it reads this way. Let's look at the final option. We've seen Jonah. He doesn't want the damned to be saved. He doesn't want the mercy of God. We've seen Moses. Man, my family made it. Me and my kids, we're going to be just fine in glory. By the way, if you look at the rest of the story about how things went with his kids, not a great story. We have Abraham, for 10, Lord. We have Moses, stop what you're doing. And if you're going to do it, take me too. When's the last time you stood in solidarity with the damned? Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We've gotten so good at defining sinners that we forgot that sin is a sickness. We've made it so much about the judgment and wrath of God and his holiness, that we forgot that when he decided to come show us what his holiness looked like, it looked like him reclining at the table with sinners. And we get to this place like, well, if I recline with sinners, I'm affirming their sin. Grow up. Grow up. I mean that, mature. If sin is so contagious that it'll jump on you, you don't have grace. If you're so terrified of the boogeyman on someone else's life, you don't know the shining man in your own. And so there's this invitation from God that says, will you go love the ones that no one will love? Will you find the sick ones, the broken ones, the ones that have given their bodies to all sorts of vile behavior, the ones that have lost their marriage and gotten addicted, the ones on pills, the ones drunk, the ones that got a mouth like a sailor, the ones that don't know how to do right, the ones that might steal from you, the ones that might hurt? Will you love them because they're sick? Or do you just move on? Hey, Lord, thank you. Thank you for another good service. Lord, bless me. Let the prophet give me the word of the Lord and tell me that you're going to turn things in my favor. I asked you about standing in solidarity. This is a challenge because in Galatians 3, it says this of Jesus in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now let's follow this out to its logical end. Luke 22, verses 32 through 34. Where is Jesus killed? Outside the city. Mount of the Skull, Golgotha. In solidarity with two thieves. (laughs) 
When's the last time you were willing to give your life up to look like somebody that you're not even supposed to be kin with? Jesus stands there, and anyone who doesn't know him, anyone walking by, not there on the mount where the centurion realizes, surely this is the Son of God, but anyone that saw the spectacle of his cross and his carrying it stands and goes, see, he is no different than them. He's died like them. He's been tortured like them. He is damned like them. And you don't see Jesus fighting this. Instead, there on the cross, what is he doing? Is he saying, now God, bring judgment against the city of Jerusalem who killed the perfect one? No. Father, please forgive them. <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. They're, they, they messed this whole thing up. They don't get it. They just killed the one that's here to help them. Forgive them. I'm gonna challenge you. I want to challenge you. If it's the political discourse that has you all stirred up, forgive them. If it's the LGBTQ agenda plus and whatever letters I missed, forgive them. And that wasn't to be trite. I literally, so often I can't keep up with the acronyms. Forgive them. And then begin to intercede for them. Then begin to stand in the gap. Then begin to say, Lord, there's, listen, I'm from a small town, 2,500 people, two red lights. We knew who the town drunks were, right? Because people would say, oh, that's the town drunk. Well, if you know who a town drunk is, why don't you make that your prayer until that town drunk is set free? If you know someone, you go, I can't believe they're bound in some type of sexual sin and some type of perversion. Well, why don't you make that your prayer assignment? And say, I'm going to stand in their stead and say, God, be merciful to them. God, draw them with your loving kindness. God, turn my heart towards them the way your heart is turned towards them. Give me a chance to love on them. Put me in their path. Let me run into them at the grocery store and have an encouraging word. God, give me a chance to stand in their stead. Or just keep doing what you're doing. My great fear for much of the American church is this. They're excited about getting to heaven, but I wonder if they will not have the tears wiped from their eyes because they have no crowns to cast at his feet. Well, Adam, what do you mean crowns to cast at his feet? Well, Jesus said it this way. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render unto God that which is God's. Caesar's image was on the coin. He says whatever bears that image, that's what the, the king receives. What bears the image of God? So then what is the taxes of the kingdom? What have you done to draw people into the kingdom? What are you doing now? Are you concerned of your fire insurance? Everything's good, everything's great. Are you gonna make sure that you find a way to draw others? Are you gonna tell me, you go, I'm, I'm an introvert, I don't know how to talk to people. Get on your knees before the king and stand in their stead because we can be like Jesus in that. Isaiah 53 says it this way, and then I have another verse and I will close. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Hear me. You might be here and you're a visitor and you go, Adam, I don't even know Jesus like that, so this sermon might just be about me getting saved. Okay, cool, let me help you. Jesus was numbered with you as a sinner. He wasn't just numbered with you as a saint. He was counted as one of the transgressors so that you could be restored from your transgression. And sometimes he invites us into a place where we get to stand with transgressors, where we get to stand with the broken, where we get to stand with the hurting, where we get to love on those that no one else wants to love. Could this be a church that does that? Because there are churches in this city that won't. There are churches in this city that have no place for people that are battling. And the best is it's only certain sins. You could be a gossip and attend any church. Unfortunately, there's more scriptures about the gossip than they are the homosexual, but no one seems to pay attention to that. You can slander and come to church. Man, we just call that talking about people. Right? Because we have that. We have these, these pools of sins that are okay. And then we have the damned. He was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. I love people that love to pray. I love the term intercessor, but I really wish we would get this right. He counts himself among the transgressors, and then it says, and then he makes intercession for them. It's hard to make intercession for someone you don't count as equal to you. Because you've decided their sin makes them more shameful than your sin makes you. Or their struggle makes them worse off than your struggle makes you. But Jesus, who is the perfect one, says, I will take on the title of transgressor so that I can be one with them, so that I can stand in their stead before my Father and say, Father, don't bring judgment, bring mercy. Draw them with your loving kindness to a place of repentance. I will that none should perish. So I'll read this one last time in closing. Ezekiel 22:30. And I pray that as I read this, you consider whether or not it could be you. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. What if you're the person? What if you're the person that's going to stand in the gap for that person down your street, for that person you work with, for that boss that nobody likes? What if maybe rather than complaining again about the state of the nation or the state of the things, what if you said, no, I'm going to find someone I know that I can stand in the gap and see them turn? 
Let me go a step further. Mamas, you pray for your babies. Can you pray for someone else's like they're your own? And I'll tell you this, then it goes a step farther because if you'll begin to pray and you'll begin to change your heart towards those that are outside the camp, what you'll find is the Lord will start to lead you outside the camp. And all of a sudden, you'll be out there amongst the transgressors going, come on in, I know a good doctor. I know a place that shame can't follow. I know a place where addiction bends its knee. I know a name that's above every name. I know a name that can restore and redeem and bring things back to life that were once dead. I know a man. Would you come with me to meet him? I've spent enough time with you. You know I love you. You know I care. Will you follow me to meet the man that set me free? Because that's the cry of heaven. Jesus said it this way, the fields are white for harvest. They're ready. Jesus is going, guys, they're ready to come into the kingdom, but there's no one going out to harvest the field. So Father, I ask right now that this word would convict, that it would cut. Lord, that those that maybe have decided who they think are the damned as opposed to them would be humbled and say, no, I'm not gonna stand in judgment. I'm not gonna stand in my own righteousness. I'm gonna be like my savior and be willing to be counted among the transgressors that I may make intercession for them. God, I ask that a spirit of evangelism would come on this house, that there would be such a hunger to share their faith and to share their story. God, that they would stop looking and trying to figure out who is worse or worse off. And they would realize that they needed a doctor, their neighbor needs a doctor. All who are sick and sin need a doctor. And you, Lord, know how to bind up the brokenhearted. You know where the balm of Gilead lies. You know how to restore. And we want to partner with your restoration in the earth. We want to partner with your intercession. We want to stand in solidarity with what bears your image until all that we are able to reconcile to you are home. I'll leave you with this thought. Once you've decided to answer this question about whoever you see and perceive to be the damned, whatever sect, whatever group, whatever box that's going on in your head, for some of you, it's one, for some of you, it's another one. Once you've decided the line, this is the line and this is where the redeemed are and this is where they are not, this is what Jesus commands you to do. Cross that line. If you can define it, you can pursue it. So some of you have defined those that are too broken and too messed up, and I'm telling you, Jesus commands you to cross that line. Now you go, well, Adam, I'm, I'm someone still struggling with sin, and I, you know, I still got, listen, I didn't say go to the bar and evangelize if you struggle with drinking. Again, grow and mature. You have to minister out of the place of your capacity, right? But once you've found the line, cross it. Because there are no lines in the kingdom like that. 
And we don't decide who are goat and sheep, nor do we decide who are wheat and tares. The Lord will decide those things in the end. And in the meantime, he says, let the wheat and the tares be planted together until the time of the harvest. And this idea, well, what happens if, or I bring this person, or if it's not sincere, not your problem. I love you guys. I'm gonna be here this afternoon. There is a, there's a heavy, I have felt for a few weeks that there is a heavy prophetic unction that I'm supposed to share with many of you this afternoon. I felt that this word was supposed to be the word of the Lord for this morning. But I really do feel that there is some prophetic ministry to go on today. And so I ask you, if you can, come back. Not because I need a crowd, I don't. The less of you, the less work I do. Let's just get real facts. All you show up, it's gonna be a long afternoon. But this is what I mean. If all of you come, I'm gonna pray for every single person that comes. And I'm gonna stay here as late as it takes to minister and to love whoever needs ministry and love. But this morning, you needed to be challenged about what does it mean to love the lost and what does it mean to actually be an intercessor? Because too many of us think it's just saying a bunch of nice prayers and what it actually is is standing in someone else's stead that God might be merciful to them. I love you guys. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about Legacy Church and other resources, visit us online at legacyfamily.info.